Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Megan Smith. Megan is a member at Hardbat, and after a few of our classes, we got into conversation, and I realized really quickly that she is very highly educated, very fascinating, and I wanted to get her on the podcast, so we made it happen. Megan is a certified and licensed athletic trainer at University of Delaware, and she works with the volleyball team, the throwers, and the track and field. She's in her ninth year as a practitioner. Um, She received her BS in athletic training from Purdue and her MED in higher education with an emphasis in intercollegiate admin from University of Oklahoma. She is also working on her second master's at the moment, and she plans to graduate in May with her MBA. Uh, She's worked two professional volleyball tournaments overseas, and she's the chair of an organization called Women in Athletic Training with over 9,000 members. All of this makes her so fascinating, but what I find the most interesting is that she's also an avid exerciser outside of the gym. She has hiked the Grand Canyon from rim to rim and is just somebody that fully buys into a fit, active lifestyle outside of just going to the gym and putting in the reps, and I find that incredibly fascinating. So we dive into everything from her professional career to her hobbies outside of the gym and everything in between. This one was a really fun one. Enjoy. Megan Smith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. It is. <laughs> yeah. So we, funny enough, this this idea came about because uh, Megan is a is a member at our gym at Hardbat Athletics, and um, I knew that she had a, a background in athletic training, but didn't know any of the details. And after one of our classes, she was just stretching, and we were sitting on the floor. And next thing you know, we ended up having like a forty five minute conversation about <laughs> athletic training and strength and conditioning, and kind of like all of the the things in between. So um, I loved everything we talked about, and I was like, wow, this could be an amazing podcast for people. So uh, I'm really happy we put this together. Me too. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) All right. Well, let's let's start from the very beginning. So um, what made you want to become an athletic trainer in in the first place? So I was a four sport athlete going through high school. And one random time I got um, injured, had to sit my wait my turn. There's like an order of things that we had to do in our high school athletic training room. And, you know, Soccer was my primary sport, but I realized I was not going to be the next Mia Ham. So, and I knew I wanted to help people. So, I wanted to kind of see if I could bridge my love for sport and medicine and in that way and found athletic training and ended up going to college for that. Fantastic. Now, I know a lot of people, like an athletic trainer kind of gets lost in the mix sometimes in terms of their responsibilities. And I'm sure that to some degree, the responsibilities can change depending on the team they work for um, or the operations of things within a team structure. Um, Can you give a little bit of um, context to the audience as to like, what are some of the things that you do and what are some of the things that are generally expected of an athletic trainer? Yeah. So as an athletic trainer, um, we call kind of are the jack of all trades for a lot of uh, things. So primarily, uh, traditionally, when you think of an athletic trainer, we work with a sports team, middle school, high school, college, you know, professional, where we do injury evaluation, prevention, uh, 
uh, when someone does get injured, we're the ones that help rehab them back um, with a collaboration of other professionals. But then also uh, at the same time, we're like that primary medical provider at that first stop. So also if something emergency happens on the field, we are that person that attends to the emergency situation. We are the person that um, then also helps with like the daily gen med things. When COVID was around, we were the ones that were administering their regular tests and abiding by guidelines and stuff like that. So um, like uh, the profession itself has evolved. And so now we're in a multiple settings, like in the military and, and industrial setting and some, you know, performing arts or for physician, physician practices, like as a physician extender, um, or even I have a friend who works with police departments as an athletic trainer. Um, so it's all that same kind of concept of, um, not, we're not a physical therapist, we're not uh, EMT. We are not um, your general medical prof- professional um, that you know you see for your illnesses. But we are we kind of like our pick and or not pick and choose. We have a little bit of all of those together. Yeah. No. I mean, in my experiences, and please correct me if I'm wrong. It also seems as though athletic trainers are also kind of very, very integral to the acute phase of any sort of an issue or injury. Mm-hmm. Um, only because every time I busted myself <laughs> in sports, it was always an athletic trainer that was by my side first and foremost. So, yep. um, yeah, so you, you feel like that's, that's a big piece to it is like, you're there for, for the moment that, that things occur. Yep. And so a lot of times too, um, when, as soon as it happens and that that's the best part of being an athletic trainer, I have seen that instant that it happens, I attend to it, we evaluate it, we can then see if this person can get back on the court or not. And then I'm the one that helps rehab them back into that 100% phase. And then that that happy back moment where they're like, yeah, I can get to play again. <laughs> so, I bet you have to have a pretty low pulse as an athletic trainer. And also you can't be very squeamish, that's for sure. No, you've seen some, I've seen some really weird stuff. <laughs> But I love those things, you know, we're, um, you know, it's not great when athletes get injured, especially like on national television. But when those things happen, we are eyes are popped at like, what, what just happened? (laughs) And what can we do? That's funny. It reminds me, my, my wife is a a pharmacist and when she was going through her residency, she would come back home and she'd be like, someone coded today and was like all lit up. (laughs) Why is that? Why is that a positive thing? But I guess, you know, when you're, when, when that's, you know, when your heart's in what you do with that, like those are the moments of excitement because it's, it's where you put those thousands of hours into training for. Oh, a hundred percent. And thankfully, you know, we don't have to do that on an absolute regular basis, but when you do, you know, it is reducing a dislocated finger or those, you know, um, those are fun to do. And or if you have a broken bone or, you know, that emergency, that kind of adrenaline rush, it's again, you never want to see it, but you know, we're ready and we're happy to actually be able to attend to our athletes in the right manner so that they get the help that they needed. Yeah. And there's no better time to prove that you are qualified in what you do than to be able to perform under pressure in a moment like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's awesome. So, um, give a little bit of context as to like what it is that you're doing right now with, um, your abilities as an athletic trainer. So right now I work at the university of Delaware. I am an athletic trainer for the volleyball team and I am also an athletic trainer for the throwers within the track team. And Within that, um, uh, for volleyball, I travel to all games. I 
we go to all practices. Um, I work with our, so I'm housed within our sport performance department, which has um, sports psych, sport nutrition, our sports strength and conditioning, um, our athletic training department. And then we have a head team physician who's right on campus that we work with pretty closely just so we can get the care that we need for our athletes pretty quickly. Nice. Now, you know, we obviously talked about the kind of the urgency nature of, or the urgent nature of like having to rush onto the field or the court to Mm -hmm. be able to deal with the players. But I think one thing that you do really well is also recognize that these things are also just a culmination of other things that have already occurred or happening or, um, you know, haven't been attended to correctly. Um, can you speak to the some of the nuances of like the conversations and the practices necessary with the athletes to try to help kind of push forward a little bit more of a preventative um, kind of perspective when it comes to injury prevention? So, I mean, I think anyone in the field kind of knows that there's no just one simple thing that we can do to prevent injury. But a lot of our things, you know, as an athlete comes into campus and at the beginning of the year and a regular basis, we are regularly preaching the recovery of sleep, um, taking care of our bodies through, uh, uh, proper diet and nutrition, um, looking at, 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 listening to our bodies when our bodies are not are telling us that we are not okay or something's kind of like not our normal what is it telling us and how do we fix it because on our side we i watch their movements on a regular basis and i can see you know all right well we're seeing some compensations here here and here talk with our strength coach have you been seeing them as well how do we kind of start fixing them and addressing them um we have uh Thankfully, this is not just uh, just our eyes looking at us. We have some sport data analysis that we use to kind of help with uh, tell us those metrics that um, college students may not be able to verbalize, <laughs> um, and they don't really notice within themselves. So after like a weekend, we have we wear chips where it tells us you know how hard someone was going and how fa- fatigued they may be, and kind of who are some red flags. But then we also have um, in our weight room, we have uh, uh, Sparta Science, which it tells us if we have any uh, physical imbalances between, you know, our dominant, our non-dominant sides, um, both lower and upper body, and uh, what that looks like proprioceptively. If if we are reaction times are they're in the norm within their baseline from when we took before they got on campus, or when they first got on campus. Um, so it's like there's a, a whole encompassing thing where we have to make sure that we are also just being well-rounded, noticing that there's no one way to kind of make sure that we are, you know, putting all of our eggs in a basket. We have so many things. And then again, mental health is something that is always, you know, kind of pushed to the wayside or not thought about as much, but that's something that some, as someone who's working hard full time as an athlete, you know, working out potentially up to three hours a day and then sitting in class for, whoever knows how long, I don't, I mean, it depends on the athlete and their major, you know, that takes a toll on them just as much, uh, trying to stay up top of whatever they're trying to study. Yeah. And I think you highlighted a really good point there, which is that kids that are 18 to 22 years of age probably don't have the best, um, ability to look intrinsically to help determine some of the red flags and symptoms simply by the fact that many of them have never been injured or had a serious injury before, let alone had to ask some of the larger 
um, more nuanced questions around their recovery and how mm-hmm. they feel both, mm-hmm. you know, physically, mentally, and emotionally. You know, I wonder has, do you know if whoop or, or aura or any of those have, developed a partnership with any universities for the benefits of using like wearables for to determine recovery for athletes? So I know that WHOOP has, um, so we have actually a couple of teams on campus who the coaches have encouraged their athletes to do it. And I, I um, specifically, I know men's golf team really uses them a lot. Uh, they are um, utilized a lot for their sleep and they, they wear them all the time. I, you know, I, I don't have a WHOOP, so I don't know all the um, ins and outs of it, but I do know that, that it is utilized. I don't know if they've had a partnership with other universities, but I know it's pushed from, by some people and some or, uh, teams or organizations across the country, probably that are utilizing that information because again, the, the information that it provides helps to offset, you know, well, it's telling me that I have, you know, three hours of sleep or four hours of sleep, whatever. <laughs> um, I need to be better at that. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, all wearables have their strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've used Whoop for years um, and have, have since switched to an Apple Watch just because of some of the functionality and features I was looking for. But yeah, Whoop is like the tip of the spear when it comes to sleep and its uh, influence on recovery. So, I mean, mm-hmm. for, a, for a college coach, you know, I'm sure they, they uh, in receiving that data would be uh, happy to have it, but maybe a little bit <laughs> deterred by the results because, as we all know, it's really hard to get college students to go to bed on time. That is by far the hardest. Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh yeah, I feel so rest and recover for the day. How much did you sleep then last night? How'd you sleep? Well, I think I got like four hours, and you're like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> a, a fun conversation I wanted to get into with you is like kind of the need for the athletic trainer, the strength coach and everyone kind of within that team to, to just establish like a trusting empathetic relationship with Mm -hmm. the athletes. Um, because I think that one of the main priorities of anyone that is overseeing teen athletes or, um, college level athletes is the ability to provoke foresight in them, right? It's like Mm -hmm. to get them to see the importance of having foresight as to their, their decision-making at the moment, because as we all know, like teenagers are just generally really poor at, at like having foresight with their life, which is, you know, to be understood, you know, they're developing, they haven't had much life to, to look back on, let alone to look forward to at that point. You know, it's hard for them to be able to project very much so into the future because they've barely t- um, touched adulthood at this mm-hmm. point. And I think that that's where the professional can come in and, as long as they can establish that trusting relationship can be like, listen, we need to fix this issue with your ankle, not because you need to play next Wednesday, but because I don't want you to walk around with a limp for the next decade. Yep. A hundred percent. And that's what, so a lot of the things, um, something that was implemented at here at UD that, uh, was not at any of the previous institutions is we have these monthly care meetings where the, all of the interprofessional, um, uh, relationships that we have within our like sport, de- sport performance department that I mentioned previously, get on a, like a zoom call and we go through and we talk about each athlete. I'm like where we may see red flags that someone else may be seeing on a regular basis because they see them in a different realm, whether it's like academics or in a nutrition meeting, they said something that might be concerning for us to be aware of so that we can start addressing also in other realms. Um, 
we have with that at the same time where I've had a conversation with an athlete where like, you know what, this, this is concerning. This affects your, the way you live life in general, not just for sport, but that overall, um, and your body's just trying to play catch up. And until we can fix these things, I'm going to send you a referral over to this person for you to see them for, to hopefully get, you know, that information, that education, whatever that, and talk it through to kind of figure out what, where they, we can meet you in that, that journey, because meeting them at that journey of where they're at to kind of figure out what, what that is and what's the limitations that's stopping them from doing it to then bring them into that healthy realm of recovery and making the right choices is like the first step because, um, I'm not a dietitian and I'm not a nutritionist, but I'm going to like, I'm going to obviously notice when something's wrong, but send them immediately to that person, text them to let them know that, Hey, so-and-so is heading your way. They need to be making an appointment with you because we've got, you know, ABC things to address on what I see on my end, how like do with it as you wish kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. So would you, I mean, let's open up, you know, that, that can a little bit. Mm-hmm. What other issues we talked about sleep, you obviously alluded to nutrition a little bit. What are some of the, the larger scale issues that you see across the board um, in working with uh, college level athletes? Well, that, that nutrition, I'm going to dive a little bit more into that one, but that, cause you know, um, we constantly have under fuelers, you know, you have these, these athletes who, you know, you hear that we have, you know, you're supposed to hit 2000 calories a day, not that they're counting calories, but they're on the go from the morning to they, from they wake up to when they go to bed for the most part, they're not meal prepping, <laughs> you know, like that foresight that you talked about prepping and getting ready for the day. They're snacking. They're not utilizing, um, some of those things that really could, um, help prep them, their body, in mind for classes and, and, and practices and lifting or whatever, um, by fueling with coffee and, um, a bag of, or a granola bar or something like that. Like that's something that's a regular thing. We're trying to encourage those actual meals of some sort. Um, and, and nutritional, nutritional meals, not just like McDonald's or something like that. That's quick and easy. Um, yeah. Do you ever, I mean, there's obviously got to be times cause I've, I've even seen this and in, in people, um, that were in the March Madness tournament commenting that they could barely afford food. Now this was obviously before they changed the structure where athletes could start getting paid, but even within that framework, we're looking at maybe the top 5% being able to reap any of those rewards. Like most of the athletes are still going to be, um, re- um, they're, they're going to be, basically leaning onto their scholarship for any sort of spending dollars. So, mm-hmm. you know, there obviously is, a, is an aspect of this, which is financial, which is like, yeah. how much can I even afford? And then there's the tool and resources aspect to it, which is like, how, how can I prep food when I'm in a dorm that has a microwave? Yep. Um, you know, and now my only option is to go out to eat every, everywhere or at the cafeteria. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, this is slightly anecdotal, but I would, I would be willing to, to, um, to bet on it, which is that I find that the general public generally overeats and that the average athlete generally undereats. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's because of the things that I just listed and, and more. Um, but it also is just a, a level of education and time and, um, and resources necessary to kind of like make sure that they understand the amount of fueling that they should be, um, you know, should be required given their sport and output. 
Oh, 100%. And I, that anecdotal of <clears throat> comparison of under eating and overeating, I would like, for the most part, I would, I would uh, agree with that, or I would agree with that because again, there's so many different limitations that stop the athlete from actually eating that, whether they don't like the food or they have um, intolerances of some sort, which generally, if you do have some kind of intolerance, then it does lead to, um, you know, trying limitations and further food. Like you can't just eat your normal stuff that you would find in the dining court. Um, thankfully we have one of the dining courts. They try to, you know, within the athletic realm here at UD, they try to help with that, um, and provide multiple options for vegan and gluten intolerance and dairy intolerance and stuff like that. But, um, but that doesn't always mean that it tastes like it's what you want to eat <laughs> for the day. Like that's what of you, you know not, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, your yeah, your options are you're self limiting to some degree. Like yeah. if you're already limited, and then you don't have a lot of money, and then there's not a lot of things available to you that are local. Like yeah, it just starts like chopping off the, the list of things that you can even get in your hands. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so that's part of like one of the things that again, kind of talking with our sport dietitians and our nutritionists on staff of like how can we meet you at where you're at because like we have these things that we need to address and we acknowledge that we have these limitations and how can we help make it better through like small incremental changes? Cause as you know, like you can't just say, all right, I'm going to start eating perfectly now. Um, right away. It's like those small little changes that you make through the day-to-day -day life that kind of build up into that larger, big scale of vision of what we're trying to create. Um, so trying to utilize some of those smaller things on a day-to-day -day basis and telling like, encouraging further growth from there with uh, follow-up meetings and, and um, giving them resources of what that looks like and um, like, co like collagen, um, pre-activity and um, uh, cherry juice, post-activity or whatever that may be for them specifically um, to try to help with um, supplementing that within their bodies to, to function to the level that they're trying to meet. Yeah, it's really good to hear that the athletic program is is trying to um, be a bit of a supplier in that sense. And like mm -hmm. the dietitians are actually kind of it's not just a matter of recommendation, um, you know, that they're they're stepping forward and trying to see if they can have those things available for the athletes. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I would be willing to bet that for most college athletes, it's probably also a time in their life where they've for the first time ever felt CNS fatigue. Um, in the, by the way of them now being exposed to this lifestyle where they are to some degree dependent, you know, on their own habits and behaviors, uh, where they do have to deal with the stresses of classes and of, you know, becoming a real adult <laughs> alongside of the pressures of being an athlete, by the way, they like to go out and drink a couple days a week, by the way, they're not getting the food intake that they should to fuel their, their, um, their sport. Um, you know, so they're, and, oh, and then there's the piece of they're not sleeping very well. So it's like, they're constantly tapping into that sympathetic nervous system, but very rarely having the resources, uh, to, or, or very rarely prioritizing that parasympathetic nervous system of allowing their body to kind of calm down. Have you seen that across the board? Oh, a hundred percent. And especially when like the best, um, example is when you have freshmen coming in, you know, you have freshmen coming in and we bring them in. Um, you know, a month or so in advance to kind of start to kind of get used to because the training level at the collegiate level, regardless if you're at 
NAI, D1, D2, D3, whatever, like that training is on a different level than what you did in high school or in your club. And so for us specifically, we bring them in a month or so early, six weeks early, so we can start start that training pre- training program. But as soon as preseason starts where you have those two-a-days, you start to have those, um, you start prepping for school, that it, it is a, a overload. And usually you'll kind of see some shutdown. And so um, that's where the conversation is with my athletes. Like when I try to talk to them on a regular basis, if they're not feeling well, if something's not going right, you start to notice some illness or sickness. They're like, oh, I just, I feel like crap. <laughs> it's like, okay, great. Thanks for letting me know. Talk with the coach and be like, all right, this is probably not recommended because if they're, you hit that level there where it's just they're in complete overload and they can't function, they're putting themselves at risk for injury, but then also other people around them because they're not so aware of or they're not as aware and for specifically for volleyball it's all hand-eye coordination and if you miss that you are either maybe hitting yourself with a volleyball or um hitting someone else (laughs) and or you're gonna be like or you're gonna step on something and potentially cause further injury so taking that into effect we do have like mental health days in those senses and we, we really try to keep in contact but one of my big things is when i'm talking to my athletes is you know if I ask them, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you feeling? And they'll say, fine. I'm like, that's not an acceptable answer because fine doesn't tell me how you actually are feeling. I need more detail of some sort. And I kind of joke around and be like, I will happily play 20 questions with you. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. I mean, and that, that goes back to the idea of it's, it's not the easiest for a kid that's 20 years old to ask himself or herself those types of questions, you oh, know, and then be able to come to any sort of a, a logical, reasonable answer. You know, mm-hmm. it's the first time I'm sure in their for many of these teens or athletes, it's, it's probably the first time in their life that someone has asked them to kind of dig a bit deeper um, and think about like, how do you genuinely feel, you know, not just mm-hmm. in your sport, not just walking class to class, but like throughout your entire day, mm-hmm. like what's the general tone of your mood and energy? Yeah. And we actually just, you know, this and this goes past um just that first week of you know preseason or whatever i mean we actually just did this last week where an athlete you know was in that overload motion where she wasn't sleeping well anxiety kind of gotten high for some classes that were in midterms time um feeling really just overwhelmed hadn't been feeling well um physically um and it's kind of like all right going to stop. We're going to kind of, today will be a recovery day kind of for me, but then also let's talk to the coach because it sounds like we need more than just this recovery day for the, for practice too. So then kind of working together with the coaching staff and our strength conditioning staff for what's um, required for them for the day and modifying, or if not canceling to help restart fresh tomorrow. Um, because I, whether we like it or not, like I, every person has, you know, their highs and lows days and, um, they're going to respond differently to the stressors going on in life. And um, at the college level, it's a lot. Um, I mean, I just remember being in college and, you know, some of those exams and you're st- staying up late um, and then taking um, physically taxing myself for two to three hours a day is just on top of that is just a whole nother level of like depletion. 
So, yeah, I think one of the really interesting perspectives that I've always kind of pushed back on a little bit is that the, the average college athlete is lazy when it comes to their schooling. And I don't think that many people have a true appreciation for how much is being asked of somebody to be a full time athlete and a full time student. And I realize that to some degree it's a choice. But you could also make the argument for a lot of these athletes, they wouldn't be in school if it wasn't for their scholarship for their given sport. Um, so yeah, I think that we, we do need to appreciate just how much is being tasked, um, you know, how much, how many tasks are being put onto these, these athletes, especially in like D1 and D2 programs where, you know, it's, it's a big deal that you not just take part in your sport, that you perform and perform well. A hundred percent. And especially now, um, you know, that we're talking about NIL deals and stuff like that. Like then if we are starting to, um, add that factor and then you have that external source that potentially is a revenue generator for you that depending on how you're feeling or doing kind of like we're thinking at like the professional level that affects and how well you promote yourself. That's how you are going to earn that extra money on the side, which I mean, especially at the college level, I mean, I don't think anyone's turning down extra money on the side, but that takes extra energy to completely do, or even just to intake of like, this is affecting my performance or if my, this revenue is, is, uh, has an effect on my performance overall. And so, you know, we have that physical, but then you don't know the mental taxations that come along with it on a regular basis, because not only are they doing their sport, not only are they doing classes and trying to stay on top of those a lot of times they're um super active like they're um for like community events they they have to show face mm-hmm. too through um events through there or through um volunteering at you know to sign posters at a football game or you know what i mean like whatever it may be that they for my athletes obviously they football athletes wouldn't be signing posters but the going to other events to kind of make sure that they're again, quote unquote, showing face and, and representing the university. Well, like those are other external factors that do get put onto their plate sometimes that they don't really have a choice for, but uh, definitely add to that overall, you know, load that you would see. Yeah. And I mean, not for nothing like this, I do feel like this sets people up too to get out of college and become like, yes, men or yes, women where they're so used to having to just do everything that that's their answer to anything that comes in their way. Like, yeah, I'll get it done. Yeah, I'll get it done. Yeah, I'll get it done. And I think it's just a terrible habit to carry into life. That's so we address because a lot right now their schedule is dictated a hundred percent by us, like by, by people who are, um, you know, classes, coaches, uh, appointments through sport nutrition and, and strength conditioning and rehab with me, you know, we are dictating that schedule and, um, for NARP. So non-athletic regular person, they're the person that they're creating their schedule throughout the day and they start to kind of have that development. So we have a program specifically for that at UD for called the blue program, which helps kind of start that, that process of, so they aren't so much yes manner, you know, as they go into adulthood, as they go into their careers, after they finish sport, their life as a, well, I would, I, in a way these guys, they are professionals, um, uh, within their sport to 
so they lead, we lead them into success so that, you know, if we are just, I, I feel like overall in the sport industry, it's really easy to kind of, you know, use up that talent for the university for four to five years. Um, and then kind of be like, all right, graduated, you're on your way. Um, without then providing them the resources to success, then to succeed in life long-term because, those are two different pictures completely. And you're not going to have that someone telling you over your shoulder, like, Hey, don't do that. Yes. You need to be doing this on a regular basis. You know what I mean? Where we have a lot of that direction now. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's probably some parallels to the, to the military life, which is that you, you leave this, this place where you basically have someone overseeing you and telling you what to do, whether to go right or left during every decision. And, how basically how to live your life. And then you get into a place where now it requires a degree of authorship from you, right? And like personal agency and those skills can be daunting at first, you know? And so I think if the more they can integrate that with the athlete in college, the better. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's what some of those things are. It's, you know, um, they have a financial kind of course and preparation and, um, I'm not super familiar. I'm not on this board, but they, they do communication styles and how to communicate properly and understanding your communication style and, um, all those different elements that go into being, um, an adult, uh, out of college. And, um, like you said, kind of having that authorship of yourself to, to make those decisions and, um, be individualized within their, their journey. Yeah. Now being the athletic trainer for uh, the volleyball team, that comes with its own kind of like, um, to some degree, predetermined issues just by the nature of the sport, the biomechanics, um, you know, that are prevalent, uh, amongst the athletes, given their, you know, anthropometric kind of, uh, build and frame, you're going to typically see, um, taller girls, longer levers, those sort of things. So what are some of the most common injuries that you find in volleyball? So we get a lot of patellar tendonitis. Um, we've got those long levers that put a lot of stress on the knees for those who are jumping a lot. Um, we got a lot of rotator cuff, uh, just general wear and tear. You know, if you're swinging, definitely you're depending on your mechanics and stuff. Um, coming into college, we see a lot of mechanics that need to be fixed. Um, a lot of, uh, hip stabilizers that are not strong enough that allow for knee caving and, and general loading, um, movements that are concerning that we try to fix right away. And we start working into, um, their functional movement, um, with time, but we've got that, we've got, um, our rotator cuff, uh, we got to work on some of those uh, just general strengthening. They've never, a lot of people are, you know, you think of your bigger muscles that you got, you got your biceps, your triceps, you got your shoulders or whatever you think about, you know, your delts, but those small rotator cuff muscles are what are helping kind of pull you into that, those hard hits and um, the, the, a good serve. And after a while, they, they wear down if you are not actually actively trying to make sure that they are staying strong. Um, so we've got to work on that a lot. Um, some ankle sprains, depending on um, their natural laxity and um, ankle mobility. Uh, and if, depending on their, 
where they are on the court. They're susceptible to stepping on either their teammate's foot or the other person who's on the other side of the net who they may land on their foot. How do we help prevent that from being a further injury down the line? Um, I don't require my team to wear ankle braces. I'm not one to do that. Um, I Good for you. Yeah, I'm not. I don't. I think we need to work on like natural, our, our bodies naturally being able to respond and um, try to, you know, adapt to the setting and whatever we're doing um, and be strong in that, that realm. And then if we need to add something depending on previous injury or due to injury, then we can. But at the time, no, because if we start to lock in the ankle, the, the problems just kind of move upward. Yeah, I think support is a continuum, you know, yeah. and I, I it's it, this kind of reminds me of diet culture a little bit where you get people that are like, I'll, I'll go all carnivore or be all vegan. And I think the same is true in the kind of field of support for athletes. And when I, when I say support, obviously, we're talking about like structural support, like, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, stability and integrity of a joint or, or a series of joints. And this comes by the way of like knee braces, ankle braces, wrist braces, right? We've all mm-hmm. seen this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a sweet spot to be found on that continuum. Like, in other words, like you're not recommending that they don't wear shoes, yeah. right. And saying like all natural, like, yeah. <laughs> like spread your toes out and like really grip the floor. It's like, okay, well listen, like the amount of impact that their, their, you know, ankles, knees and hips would take by the way of them playing volleyball and bare feet clearly would have more negatives than positives. Mm-hmm. But to the same effect, if you lock their ankles in place, it's like, sure, you may prevent some injury when you're on the court in terms of you land on somebody else's foot and it doesn't allow the ankle to fully go over. But you're also decreasing, right, or you are degrading the the muscles that are responsible for stabilizing that joint in the first place. And now you're at higher risk for doing things that have nothing to do with volleyball. Like this is where the player walks off of a step the wrong way and rolls their ankle because they've been in an ankle brace for the last six months. Yep. That and that when you lock in, like it's your body's natural response to respond to something that isn't the norm. So if you go into, um, so say it is we, we come down and we land on someone's ankle and you physically, your body cannot, it's going to guard. So it, it tenses up really quickly and it's trying to protect you. But if you can't roll at the ankle, your your body's going to compensate somehow. And usually it's mm. the knee. So I'd rather have an ankle injury over a knee injury any day. That's very, yeah, that's a very good point. So like that's, that is something that I like on a regular basis, ACLs naturally are predisposed for, to females and especially being a jumping sport. That is also one of our, our injuries. So again, like ankle injury, I'll take an ankle injury over a knee injury any day because an ankle injury, there's so many different elements that kind of go into that. But the knee injury, there's only so much that we can, that's holding it all together um, that really can, like it's easier to do damage in, in a way to the ligaments and the meniscus that's because you don't realize the normal wear and tear of everyday life that already is being put on these joints. Um, especially on the knee for our, our sport where you jump on a regular basis there, you know, if you were to go in and we kind of talk about this in our sport and our in general, like if you were to go in for, you know, a meniscus or something like that, you're, everyone's going to have a little bit of wear and tear because they've been jumping for 10 plus years. Like that makes sense. Um, 
just because you found something doesn't mean that it's necessarily anything super wrong, but let's not try to predispose them to something that could become wrong. Yeah, I would almost be more concerned if you were to do an MRI and find that someone had zero damage or wear and tear <laughs> on their meniscus at like a, at, at, you know, 25, 30 year old. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Like there's, you're going to, um, they talk about, well, we had so many floaters. No, that's, that's normal. That's, you know, floaters, like that's, that's the wear and tear that's being put on your body, the demands that you put on it. I would be very concerned and be like, oh, what have you been doing your whole life? And like, what magic potion have you been drinking? Well, sure. <laughs> right. Because it's like, yeah, your, your meniscus might be intact, but like, what's your bone mineral density <laughs> yeah. look like? You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. Like you might be in for some bigger problems down the road. Yeah. A hundred percent. What are your, what are your, the laxity of your joints? Like, is everything okay there? They've been taking the toll. Like there's just so many different elements that kind to go into it yeah the the buck falls somewhere yeah yeah now i'm gonna i want to go into a slightly different direction purely out of curiosity so you you hiked the grand canyon rim to rim correct i did yes (laughs) that's phenomenal so so i'm i want to dive into this i went last spring with my wife and we just did we did the south rim trail Mm -hmm. and we went down i want to say it was like the third rest stop on the way down it was probably like eight miles in total, um, like down and back. And on our way down, it was funny. We kept seeing these signs that were like, uh, down is optional, up is mandatory. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I wonder how many people get stuck down here. And we actually, we asked one of the tour guys and they said, we have to send a donkey. Like they basically send, or it was like a mule or whatever it is. They have to send this animal with like a blanket on its back and they have to like throw you over it if you get stuck down there. And the funny thing was like when we were going down, there were people coming up and I was looking at my wife, Joy, and I'm like, I don't know if she's going to make it. Like, <laughs> yeah, like literally, you know, and I'm like, holy crap. Like I think people underestimate the fact that both you're at, you're at altitude, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah. It is way steeper than you can imagine. And then there's the mental stressor of the fact that like there is not, there's not handrails. Like, okay. You are constantly in a place where like if you trip or God forbid run into a crazy person that pushes you, there is absolutely nothing you can do. You're like on a four or five foot runway with just a cliff to your death (laughs) everywhere you go. Oh, a hundred percent. Like it's so, um, I've been to the Grand Canyon a couple of times and one time, um, like my brother and I, we were going down one of the switchbacks on the South K-Bib trail and we took a picture and they're like, be careful. Someone died here off this thing. Like taking a picture, he took a too, too much of a step back like two weeks prior. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to like get back on the trail really quick. Like, like <laughs> what? <laughs> so they told us that and we're like, uh, let's get back on the trail. We're like, we just wanted to take so a picture. How so how long did it take you? So that one took, so it's from South, or we went from North Rim to South Rim. And that what time of year? Uh, May. Also, fun fact. Um, so May, I figured was you know it's warm. It's warm. We're in Arizona. Um, so we were driving. So quick, quick little story with this. We went to Havasu. We hiked out ten miles, drove to the South Rim where we got to our shuttle to take us to the North Rim, and. It is a solid blooming 80 degrees on the South Rim. So we're like, oh, we're good. So we get on this. As we're driving up to the North Rim on this shuttle, the temperature drops. 
there was like two feet of snow and we're like, <laughs> shit. <laughs> Cause we planned on just like being outside and like cowboy camping because you want the very, we wanted the bare minimum on our backs as we were ca- like going from North room to South room. And, um, we were like, we packed the bare minimum, like we're going to freeze tonight and we're, we're just going to sleep in the lobby. Thankfully, some, they double booked, someone double booked, and we got to take their room in their lodge. <laughs> yeah, we got so lucky, someone within the shuttle. Um, but um, yeah, that that was that was a wild trip. But they it took us about, what was it? Because it was a little over a marathon, so 26.8 miles, I think. And okay. um, it took us about, ended up being about 12 hours because the switchback's on the way up just we had to take our little time off that because we were on the second half of that. You're talking about going up the South rim, up the South rim. Yeah. And so we did, so we didn't do um, the South K bid because that's steeper and there's no water source. And we were like, we're going to need water at the end of this. We, we got, so at the bottom there's a campground, there's a ranch and we, that's where we decided you could split off between South K bid or bright angel. And we were like, let's do bright angel, which is, slightly easier we're gonna put in air quotes easier um it wasn't easier <laughs> it was hard still but um it's it, it, the steep steepness of the switchbacks weren't as wasn't as bad so it took us about 12 hours thankfully um and at the end of it you're like i'm done <laughs> i've never felt so sore yeah. in my life yeah easy is 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 a relative term when you're <laughs> yeah. talking about both either the grand canyon or like bryce canyon any of those oh, yeah. out there like it's it's uh it's funny because I got just super into hiking from that trip and I came home and I'm like plugging it into all trails, which is a, an app you can use. And it'd be like, it, it's showing me these trails and I'm like, this looks boring. Like, you know, and yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, of course. Like you went to the, like the peak of what you can do as far as hiking goes. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was thinking obviously not the whole time, but there were, there were parts where I'm doing this, this walk or the hike at the grand Canyon and at Bryce and whatnot. And we went to Zion as well. And like, I was thinking like, what, like if you roll an ankle out here, like who's coming to help, you know? And like how in the world, like you are in it one heck of a pickle. Like you could have, you could have nine miles left to go. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) I, so I'm that person because like I am the emergency, like the first aid person. So I always go with my youngest brother typically, and he is just so laid back, go with the flow. We'll figure it out. And I'm like, no, I have my emergency kit. I have like my first aid. I have, I usually try to take at least like one potential ankle brace. So we have something to kind of have a little bit of a stabilizer if need be, if that happens. But other than that, no, (laughs) like you're just, you're on your own. Like you have to try to figure out how to get yourself out. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I constantly am um, preaching to our membership and our local community is just the importance of play and sport and adventure as kind of the foundation of the pyramid when it comes to your fitness and health, because it's just, it's a, it's a creation of a life that's worth preserving, you know? And I Mm -hmm. think we've gotten into this place where like people fall in love with their gym and look like being a gym owner, I absolutely love the culture that we're able to, um, to maintain because of that. But at the same time, I think people can kind of just get so fixated on like the workouts that they're doing in the gym, not recognizing the freedoms that allots them or affords them um, outside of it. And I Mm -hmm. think the more we can kind of like embrace the adventure side of life, um, the more it just makes us recognize that why, why it's so important for us to continue to go to the gym. Oh yeah. This, the gym is just the beginning and the starting point to 
like, I feel like living life to the fullest, to trying those things that I guess you would say the normal person wouldn't try or wouldn't be able to complete because, um, those, those hikes are hard and, but that it's so fun to kind of push yourself in a new realm outside of the gym and be like, I can do this. And, you know, I had a friend tell me that him and his dad, this is when I lived in Illinois, would come out to the Appalachian trail and they would take two weeks and just go. And they're, you know, throughout his life, they've been working their way through it. And how like, cool is that to start working your way through like such an intense trail um, and pushing your body to those limits and seeing how far you can go in two weeks and being like, well, all right, this is where we're at. Let's go. Let's go home now, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And like for what you just said is, is for me, the dream, right? Like, like he does this with his dad, yeah. you know? And like, for me, I think about this as like a soon to be father. I'm like, what are the things that I want to be able to do when she is, you know, 14, 18, 22, 26. And I will tell you the things that I do not not want to be able to do, which is like, I don't want to be in a place where I'm retiree age, right? Mm -hmm. And be severely limited in the things I can do with this newfound freedom, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to have freedom of time and not freedom of movement. To me, that sounds like hell. Absolutely. No, I actually, I have this conversation a lot with my dad. My dad just turned 60 this year and my dad and I run Spartan races together. Like he, we do them together. We keep each other's spaces. Like we work out when we, like when I go home, we're always doing workouts together, uh, trying to kind of switch it up of like what he's doing and then what I normally do. And cause you know, we have the app and, um, then applying that and going running these races and helping each other out. And, you know, he's 60 and he's like, I'm just going to kind of, I'm trying to keep pushing as long as I can, because I want to be able to do this for as long as I, because like he played college football. He's, you know, that he just has that ingrained in him and which he is ingrained thankfully into my brothers and I, but like you said, that sounds like a personal hell to have all this time in the world, but not being able to do anything and not being able to move and do the fun things like go on those hikes or do those things with that free time. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we, well, it's, it's amazing that he did that. And I think it's really important that you noted that this is just who he is and who he's always been as a person, because I, I always remind people like, sure, you can start working out whenever you want in your life, but it's really, really hard to be like the really in shape 60, 70 year old. If you just start it when you were 50. Oh yeah. Um, but, um, you know, with that all said, like, we're talking about things that are like on a grander scale of adventure, mm-hmm. right? Things like big hikes and runs and Spartan races and those sort of things. But I think people even take for granted just like how difficult it is to do a trip through Europe. It's like, you know, you're lugging all this luggage to then get on a plane, to then have to drag it to, you know, a car, to then have to get onto a train, to then like venture into, you know, different towns that are un- you're unfamiliar with. Like, Anyone that's gone on a vacation overseas with a bunch of luggage knows that like it's a physical feat. <laughs> you know, like it is uh-huh. not a simple task. And like if you're 65, 70 years old and you, maybe you don't want to go hike the Grand Canyon, like it's still your physical freedoms still are important just for you to be able to explore. Oh, 100%. And as if you're exploring these areas, you're walking everywhere. And being able to walk those miles for to see all the, you know, cool things while you're exploring the area that you're in, like that, that's the nature, especially in like Europe, you, you know, that's the nature you're walking everywhere. If you can't do that, you're not going to get the full extent of what you're trying to reach when you're out there. 
No, and the irony here is that we know one of the greatest predictors of lifespan is walking speed. Yep. Especially as you age, mm-hmm. you know, which is just so fascinating. Uh, now, you said you get in, you did Spartan, Spartan races and stuff. Do you, um, I think I also saw you get into, like, you do bouldering? I do. I do like to boulder. So um, when I lived in Illinois um, on a whim, I was like, let's do a part-time job. And I, I've worked at a gym before and I know nothing about bouldering, but they were just looking for someone to work at the desk. So I was like, I can do that. Um, and I got super into it and it's so much fun because it's like a whole new level of sport. You have to have strong fingers. You have to have, you know, hand-eye coordination, but also you have to be strong, but super flexible to stay close to the wall and know how to move your body and and body awareness. It's a whole new level and it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's so hard. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, you know, we, we didn't talk about, but should be rather obvious is that in all of these things we just mentioned that kind of fell under the umbrella of adventure, um, come by the way of you being detached from technology, Mm -hmm. right. And distraction, you know, you, 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 well, you better not be looking at your phone as you're going down the grand Canyon. (laughs) No, Um, no, no. (laughs) Terrible idea. Um, you know, I think this is, it's becoming, we're starting to see it kind of the, the ship is rocking back the other direction at this point where I think people are just starting to genuinely recognize how addictive, um, some of the, especially some of these short form, uh, forms of media have become, you know, the TikTok, the reels, the things where you're just basically passively scrolling. And, you know, can you speak a little bit to why, you know, how it's been important to you to be able to kind of detach from these things and, you know, do more activities that are a bit more focused around, uh, you know, mindfulness and uh, limiting distraction? Well, um, I think mindfulness is like everyone should be practicing it personally, like uh, some kind of mindfulness, whatever it works best for you. And I, I teach a health class at um, general health class at UD and that looks different for everyone, whether it's just going for a walk or sitting and doing meditation, meditating and kind of calming the mind because we have a constant input. And for me, like that just like, I live a very fast paced life working in athletics and in sport I need to slow down. I know I, and I can tell when I haven't been meditating or something because my like anxiety and overwhelmed feelings start to kind of creep up and just going out for a walk or getting out in nature where I completely lose service and I can't contact anyone. It's just so freeing. Um, I love it. Um, and typically after every season, I'll try to take, I've taken, um, most seasons at least, um, take like a solo trip out somewhere and just, I'm gone for three days, three to four days just to rejuvenate. And I'm usually hiking or doing something because I just can't, I need to like reset. And if we are having that constant feed, so if we think of like social media, constant feed rolling in our mind of some kind of, of what other people are telling us instead of what our mind is, it's just, it's not becoming your true self personally. And then you have these other voices in your head and you just need to kind of like silence them and try to, um, like reset. Uh, and if you're not doing that on a regular basis, it adds up quickly. Yeah. And the time alone is, is the time where you tap into the creative part of the creation process, you yeah. know, and like, um, a lot of the, the good that both of us do as professionals comes by the way of having time to ourselves to think about some of the more complex issues. So yeah, yeah. I find that to be really helpful. Um, do you read a lot? 
I do. I love to read. Um, I um, right now I'm reading textbooks, uh, kind of for because I'm taking I'm finishing up my MBA right now. But oh, very uh, nice. Yeah. Um, but uh, I am a sucker for any kind of sport book and um, like the leadership self help type thing. Oh very man! Good. Wow, <laughs> we could we could go for another hour right now. Yeah. Um, one book I will definitely recommend just because it's highly pertinent to what we just talked about. Have you ever read The Comfort Crisis? No, but I've heard of it. Okay, Michael Easter. I'm almost done it. So when I'm done, I will give it to you. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I'm all about sharing books. No, yeah. that's awesome. Um, fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you hopping on. This has been a blast. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely think that we could do this again. Um, to wrap this up, I, I want you to expand a little bit on if, if someone's interested in becoming an athletic trainer, uh, what recommendations do you have for them? Um, if someone wants to become an athletic trainer, first, uh, talk to, find a local athletic trainer and talk to them, try to get their insight, get, ask them some questions. Um, there's one and there should be one in every community. We're working on trying to make sure that there's one at every, at least every high school. Um, that's a, a baseline right now at Delaware in the state of Delaware. Um, but in general too, um, that's something that you should just ask questions. NATA, which is our national athletic trainers association. That is a resource online to look at if need be. Um, and then feel free to, I mean, if they ever had questions, they could contact me. I always am up for helping others, you know, yeah, tell navigate everyone where they Yeah, tell everyone where, the, where they could reach you. Yeah, so my, um, you can contact me via email with my emails, megsmith768 at gmail.com. Or um, my, uh, probably my Twitter. I, I'm more act, some active. My Twitter, or my Instagram's private. But um, Twitter, it is... What is my Twitter? Oh man, I don't, I don't even know what my Twitter is. Um, oh, I, don't sweat it. It is Megan Smith ATC. Yes, Megan Smith ATC. Basic M E G A N S M I T H ATC, which is athletic. Leave it training. to the girl that ha- loves adventure to forget her Twitter. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, again, yeah, I, I, I check it occasionally, but or on a regular basis, but it's not one where I like memorize. Man, I've never had to. <laughs> Do that hey, don't sweat it. Don't sweat it. <laughs> cool. Well, Megan, thank you so much for hopping on. I'm sure we will continue this conversation a thousand times over at the gym. So yeah, perfect. Thank you. Have, thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you again for jumping on the podcast today. I just want to take a quick second to remind you that we post a lot of free and helpful content on our social media pages. You can find us at Hardbat Athletics on Instagram and Facebook and visit our website at www.hardbatathletics.com to learn more about what we do at our facility. Let's keep raising the standard together.